They called him the Oil King and the New Rockefeller. He was charming, generous, the life of the party, and by all appearances, an astute businessman. But was it all too good to be true? This is the story of Leo Koretz, Chicago's greatest swindler. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Leopold Koritz was born in July 1879 in Bohemia, a western province of Austria-Hungary, the seventh of nine children born to Heinrich and Marie. Due to ethnic tensions in the area, this family of German Jews decided to set out for a fresh start in America. Eight-year-old Leo Koritz and his family arrived at New York Harbor in September of 1887 aboard the SS Wera. Leona's family were among the 400,000 immigrants processed that year at Castle Garden, the predecessor to Ellis Island. Once processed, Heinrich and Marie gathered their family and grabbed a train headed west to a city they had heard Germans speak of frequently, Chicago. Chicago's population had doubled to more than one million residents during the 1880s, with a third of those being foreign-born. By 1890, half a million people in the city were of German descent, making them the largest ethnic group. The Koritzes joined a Jewish community that was growing. By the turn of the century, one out of every 20 Chicagoans was Jewish. Leo's father changed his name from Heinrich to Henry and settled in an area of Chicago called North Town, now known as Old Town, and became an insurance salesman. At 15, Leo Kritz entered ninth grade at Lakeview High School on the city's north side, where he did well in school and excelled in the debating society. Leo Kritz, it seemed, was good at being persuasive. After graduating high school, Leo Kritz took a job as an office boy in the law firm of Moran, Mayer, and Meyer, where he was encouraged to take night classes at the nearby Chicago-Kent Law School. By June of 1901, Leo was part of the graduating class, a class encouraged by the faculty to always conduct themselves with honesty and integrity. That lesson doesn't appear to have stuck with Leo. Back at Moran, Mayer, and Meyer, Leo Kritz worked alongside some of the wealthiest and most powerful lawyers in Chicago, helping solve the legal problems of the firm's business clients. Kritz quickly learned the intricacies of corporate law and soon realized a savvy lawyer in Chicago could make a fortune. He decided to branch out on his own. Being a young lawyer in the early 1900s in Chicago, it turned out, wasn't as easy as Leo Kritz expected. By 1905, he had fallen in love with a teacher named May, the daughter of German-Jewish parents who lived in the upscale Kenwood, Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago. It was around this time he made the first of many dishonest moves. A friend came into Kuritz's law office with money to invest. Kuritz took the man's money and in return gave him a fake mortgage for a property that didn't exist. The client thought the money had been lent to someone buying property, much like a bank does, and expected he would eventually be paid back his principal plus interest. 
Instead, Kritz pocketed most of the money, using just a small portion to cover principal and interest payments. When that money ran out, Kritz drew up another fake mortgage and sold it to someone else. It became so easy for him to do that when asked about it 20 years later, Kritz could not even make a guess as to the accurate number. With each new mortgage tied to non-existent buildings or land, Kritz had to keep up the charade. Quote, Each fake called for some more fakes to cover the first ones up, he later recalled. I got deeper in the hole. Leo Kritz began to experience health issues, especially with his eyesight, which doctors attributed to the smoky air of Chicago. When it was suggested he get out of the city to recuperate, a friend recommended Kritz for a job selling farmland in Arkansas. Leo decided to check it out. Leo Kritz spent six months in the town of Wheatley, Arkansas, halfway between Memphis and Little Rock, selling farmland and convincing farmers to switch to growing rice. He bought property of his own there at just the right time. Farms worth $10 an acre in 1905 were getting $100 an acre just five years later. Leo returned to Chicago managing his bogus mortgages, but now he had a new angle. He started selling shares in rice farms and selling mortgages on rice farms in Arkansas. Spoiler, the majority of those rice farm mortgages did not exist. In 1907, Kritz met a man named David Nieto. Nieto had an investment opportunity involving the development of the timberlands of Panama's Bayano River, and all he asked of Leo Kritz was a $10,000 investment, slightly more than $300,000 in today's money, to get in on the ground floor. Of course, Kritz did all his due diligence to ascertain whether this offer was legit, and when he felt something was off, he walked away. I'm kidding. He talked nine of his friends into each ponying up $1,000, adding to his $1,000, and handed over the $10,000 to this smooth-talking guy. Weeks passed with no updates from Nieto. Finally, a cable arrived from Nieto asking for more money which Kretz sent. More cables arrived and more requests for money. Kretz finally began to get suspicious, so he decided to take a trip to Panama to see how his money was being used. After a long journey, Leo Kretz surprisingly found Nieto, but soon discovered it was all a scam. There was no timber operation, and his money was gone. When Kretz threatened to go to the authorities, Nieto flew into a rage, telling Kretz if he turned him in, Nieto would find him and kill him. Leo Kretz believed him and backed down. By this time, Leo's wife May had quit her teaching job to raise their son, Mentor Henry, cool name, and Leo was still on the hunt for money-making opportunities to keep ahead of his many mortgage scams. His time in Panama showed him one thing. Pitch an investment deal that is believable, and suckers will hand you their money. As Leo saw it, Nieto's big mistake was getting greedy. He was too eager to get his hands on the $10,000. Kritz felt that if he made his enterprise profitable, no one would question it. 
they certainly wouldn't travel anywhere to check up on things. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Kuritsa's idea was to take the Panama scheme and add his own twist. Leo and May took a trip to Panama with their two-and-a-half-year-old son, mentor Henry, during which Leo lied to his wife about researching timber interests for a syndicate of investors. Back in Chicago, Leo drew up a report about the resources of a Panamanian property ready for development. It was 5 million acres, 7,800 square miles right on the Bayano River. Describing the property as a paradise of thick forest and lush Greenland, Kretz claimed, quote, There is scarcely a vegetable grown in the United States that will not grow here and produce to troublesome abundance, end quote. Between timber production and the ability to grow sugarcane, cocoa, pineapples, limes, bananas, and more, this sounded like a goldmine to the uninitiated, and Leo knew it. According to Leo, he was retained to survey the Bayano property for a syndicate of investors, and for his efforts, he was given $1 million worth of stock, with the option to buy more at $1,000 per share, with shareholders earning a 10% return. At first, Leo kept things quiet while he accepted money from just a few close friends for stock in the Bayano River project. As money came in, Kritz became more flashy with his new wealth, buying expensive suits and dining at upscale downtown restaurants, often with the wives of investors. Those who knew him thought he was schmoozing the wives to gain favor with their husbands. That may have been part of it. But for this nebbish of a man, now on the wrong side of 40, with thinning hair and a few extra pounds, the company of a variety of attractive women was exciting. Leo kept the circle of those to which he would sell stock fairly small, mainly close friends and family. He was quick to pay out the dividends. Those who invested with him often reinvested the dividends back into the stock, making it even easier for Leo's scam to take root. Now, if you're thinking, oh, so he set up a Ponzi scheme. Well, you're right. Although Italian-born Carlo Ponzi, a.k.a. Charles Ponzi, was not the first in history to set up an operation like this, his name is most often referenced when people like Bernie Madoff do it. But here's the really weird thing. Ponzi was busted for running his scheme in the summer of 1920, and his activities were not only fresh in people's minds, but some of Leo Kritz's friends even made jokes about Ponzi to Kritz. Oof, boy. Outsiders, Leo feared, might get inquisitive and start asking questions. Those inquiries would bring trouble, so Leo denied those. He didn't know well the chance to buy stock, at least early on. 
selling to his family was actually part of the grift. Anyone looking at Kritz would see that some of the biggest investors were members of his own family, his mother, brothers, in-laws. I mean, what kind of monster would scam those closest to themselves? So this had to be legit. When asked later why he accepted money from family members, Leo said he had no other choice. Quote, I never wanted members of my family in, and often I sought to persuade some friend or relative in all sincerity not to turn over their thousands. End quote. He feared if he pushed back too hard, people would get suspicious. In 1916, Kurt signed a 10-year, $300 a month lease on a one-acre home at 2715 Sheridan Road in Evanston, near the campus of Northwestern University. The home was worth $90,000, about $2.3 million in today's money, and May had $15,000 with which to decorate the place with fine furniture and antiques. They also owned two Rolls Royces. Kritz gained a reputation around his new home as community-minded and generous, supporting the Chicago Jewish War Relief Fund. May was generous as well, donating a reported $1,000 a month to a Jewish orphans fund and other local charities. Now, if anyone wanted out of their investment for any reason, Leo Kritz would write them a check on the spot. When one investor asked for his $30,000 back, Leo wrote him a $40,000 check, calling the extra amount a parting bonus. The man never cashed the check and soon returned to Leo, asking to get back in. As new investors started to dwindle and money coming in started to slow, Leo let it slip that a new discovery was made on the Bayano River land. They struck oil there. Not only did investors go bonkers over the news, Leo made it even more irresistible by telling oil investors their dividends would not be 10% annually, as with the old stock. Their investments would pay back 5% monthly, an unheard of 60% per year. Kritz's empire finally grew so big that wise investors started asking questions. A cagey Kritz dodged the questions as artfully as he could until, much like it happened with David Nieto's scam with Leo's $10,000 all those years ago, investors decided to travel to Panama to see the operation for themselves. Once there, they learned the truth. There was no Bayano River syndicate, no operation, and no one there had ever heard of a Leo Kritz. Before word got back to Chicago, Leo handed his family members sizable checks claiming they were bonuses and that he had to go to New York for business. Leo Kritz got out of Dodge with $175,000, nearly $3 million in today's money, before the authorities in Chicago came looking for him. As Kritz's swindle came to light and his photo appeared on the front page of Chicago newspapers, a group of residents and workers at the Shirley Apartments on Drexel on Chicago's south side did a double-take. Many recognized the man pictured as Al Bronson, 
who had rented apartment 200 for the last six years and lived there with his pretty wife, Alice. Bronson, as far as anyone knew, was a traveling salesman who kept odd hours. Neighbors recalled the couple seemed to only be around in the afternoon and were rarely home at night. This gave reporters following the story and detectives on the case an all-new angle. Kretz had been stepping out with a married woman, the wife of the owner of the New Strand Theater at Division and Hoyne in Wicker Park. This theater owner had invested $35,000 with Kretz. Kritz spent the next year and a half on the run using the name Lou Keat, opening a bookstore in New York on Madison and 73rd Street near Central Park, before moving to Nova Scotia in Canada, growing a full beard and professing to be a literary critic. He was finally caught when the owner of a tailor shop in Halifax noticed a tag in the lining of a suit he was repairing included a name. The name was not Lou Keat, as the man had claimed, but Leo Kritz. Chicago detectives came knocking not long after. Kritz did not fight extradition. As for the money he absconded with when he fled to New York, then Canada, according to Kritz, quote, I intended to use this $175,000 as a means of recovering every penny I owed. To invest this money, make it grow, and then someday come back to Chicago and pay back every nickel, Corrette said. At his trial in Chicago in December of 1924, Corrette's pleaded guilty, and the judge, taking this into account as well as Leo's declining health, sentenced Corrette to one to ten years at Joliet Penitentiary. The press was outraged, printing scathing condemnations of the judicial system going easy on the wealthy. Leo Kritz would not stay in prison long, though. On January 8, 1925, he slipped into a coma brought on by his diabetes and died at 8.40 p.m. that night in the Gray Hospital Ward of the Joliet Pen, just 34 days into his sentence. Two of Kritz's brothers and his son, mentor Henry, were by his side when he passed. His wife May was on her way to the prison, but did not make it in time. According to the news reports, Kretz had, quote, in the space of imprisonment, shrunk to a caricature of his former self, a broken, dispirited, hopeless man, knowing for days that his end was approaching, end quote. Dr. Fletcher, the prison's doctor, said, quote, he knew that he was going to die and did not seem to care. He did not seem interested in anything anymore, end quote. In an odd bit of timing, Kritz's death came on the same day that an auction house in Nova Scotia was auctioning off his properties there. The carefully collected antiques and other household treasures were sold off to the highest bidder, and with those, the memory of Leo Kritz dimmed. Leo Kritz was buried at the Waldheim Cemetery in Forest Park in a simple funeral. As the Tribune would report, quote, no crowds, no elaborate funeral cortege, no pallbearers, no heaped-up flowers, still fewer heaped-up eulogies. Nothing but the minimum for the man who always loved the maximum. End quote. 
Two days after the funeral, a front-page headline in the Chicago Herald and Examiner reported that Coretz's death was a suicide. According to Dr. Fletcher, the prison doctor, Leo had somehow smuggled a three-pound box of chocolates into Joliet and ate them all. Quote, Candy was poisoned to Coretz no more so than any other incurable diabetic, but it was poison, end quote, making suicide, quote, a reasonable conclusion, end quote. It was also revealed that syrup often accompanied prison meals, which gave Coretz easy access to even more sugar. Guards monitoring the mess hall claim they watched Leo Coretz trade the food on his plate for extra servings of syrup, estimating he consumed twice as much as the other inmates. 147 creditors came forward with claims adding up to more than $2.1 million, and after lawyers' fees and expenses, investors recovered 16 cents on the dollar. Leo's brothers' families and Leo's mother, Marie, claimed a loss of almost $170,000, nearly $2.8 million in today's dollars. Leo's widow, May, made ends meet by selling coal and eventually fuel oil. Quite the come down from the spendy days when Leo Kritz was on top of the world. May never remarried and died in 1941 at the age of 58. In addition to their son, Leo and May had a daughter, Mari, who trained as a stenographer, got married to a salesman, and raised two children. She died in 1975. Leo and May's son, mentor Henry, had learned to play the piano as a child and eventually started working at nightclubs under the stage name Red Kearns, sporting an oversized red handlebar mustache. He married a nightclub singer and raised four children together before he died in 1971. His death certificate lists his legal name not as Kuritz, but as mentor Henry Kearns. More than 13 years after his death, Leo Kritz's name was on the cover of the October 1938 issue of Inside Detective Magazine. The headline read, Too Many Women, The Sensational Swindles of Leo Kritz. listening to today's episode about Leo Koretz, Chicago's greatest swindler. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Much of this story was influenced by the 2015 book Empire of Deception by Dean Job. I have links to that book and other items related to Chicago's amazing history if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. 
The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, John. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and avoid the swindlers.